Much jubilation, wrote Wally Stradwick in his diary after receiving a letter from the Admiralty ordering him to report to its aviation training headquarters in Portsmouth. I immediately experienced the urge to perform something in the line of cartwheels. Two weeks later, in the late summer sunshine of 1942, he made the stomach-churning journey familiar to many hostilities-only naval airmen in the Second World War. Catching a train from London's Waterloo Railway Station to Portsmouth, he took a quick ferry crossing to Gosport and a short bus ride and reported at HMS Daedalus, an onshore Royal Navy Air Base in Leon Solent. Life as a naval cadet had begun. At the end of the first week, Stradwick scribbled down his impressions. Well, I've now been in the Royal Navy a few days. It seems longer. Charlie sounds at 6.30, and it's almost a possibility to get a wash, as there are about ten hand basins between nearly two hundred of us. Meals, liberty boats, and divisions are notified on the loudspeakers by bugle calls. These dash loudspeakers get on our nerves. All the time, from 6.30am to 10pm, lights out, or rather, darken ship. Apart from the time we are receiving instruction, etc., the ordinary programme is relayed. It gets noisily and gratingly monotonous. Stradwick's shock at his new surroundings was echoed by many civilian recruits. After two weeks at HMS Daedalus, the cadets made the short journey from Leon Solent to Gosport to another stone frigate, slang for a Royal Navy shore base, HMS St. Vincent, where all new pilots and observers took a two-month course studying basic seamanship. To the frustration of the young men, who were understandably champing at the bit to get into the air, there was no flying yet. Instead, the course at St. Vincent covered a plethora of subjects, from Morse code to ship recognition, navigation, knots, and plenty of square bashing. It was a boot camp, where the Royal Navy could stamp its mark by knocking tradition and discipline into new recruits. It doesn't matter a fish's tit whether you can fly like Alan Cobham if you are not first a bloody good seaman and fit material to become a bloody good officer, one instructor bullishly told the recruits. Stradwick noted, The things that are invariably stressed at most lectures are, one, we are in the Royal Navy, the Fleet Air Arm is a specialist branch and not a separate service or even one closely united to the RN, two, one day, if lucky, we will be officers, and that entails terrific responsibilities and understanding. Each potential pilot and observer was now an officer cadet naval airman second class. Immediately after arriving, they reported to the clothing store, known in the Navy as slops, to be issued with their Matlow uniform. This comprised a seemingly endless list of items, including two black handkerchiefs to be worn around the neck as a sign of respect for Lord Nelson, a ditty box to carry everything in, oil skins, an overcoat, and a kit bag. Finally, when the overloaded and somewhat bemused recruits thought that was it, they were also given a copy of the Admiralty Manual of Seamanship, Volume 1, and two wooden stencils to stamp their names into every item of clothing using black and white paint. The Matlow uniform wasn't as practical as army fatigues. Most cadets found it impossible to put on without a daily wrestle. The jumpers, made of serge, were invariably too tight. The trousers were cut in traditional navy style with a square flap instead of flies, which deterred any temptation for a quick leak. But the uniform wasn't meant to be practical. 
Never was there a more graphic illustration of rank, tradition, and culture than the bell-bottoms and visorless cap, a way for the Admiralty to brand its identity onto every man. The cadets were now part of a giant machine. If there was any doubt when they arrived, by the end of the first week the Navy had made it clear to the trainee flyers who they served. Following yet more medicals, and stripping naked for the obligatory FFI, free from infestation of Nitz, Lice, and Scabies examination, they were given a painful injection against tetanus and typhoid, prompting some to pass out there and then, others later. St. Vincent resembled a smaller version of London's Holloway Prison, with gloomy 18th-century red-brick barrack blocks surrounding a vast tarmac parade ground. The cadets were split into fifty strong numbered groups, with three new courses, two pilots,